Hello and welcome to the Truth About Local Government podcast, a podcast aimed at providing a platform to promote the excellent work that the political members and officers of local authorities are doing to overcome the increasing challenges facing the communities across the UK. Additionally, we will be promoting the wider way of career opportunities that exist within local government. We hope this podcast will help drive engagement between the public and local authorities across the UK. Welcome back to The Truth About Local Government. Today we are talking with Ashley Pryor, a highly experienced head of highway services, somebody who I think offers a very frank but very um, uh, supported view on uh, local government uh, and, and around highway services. So Ashley, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. How are you? I'm fine, and, and thanks for inviting me. It's very kind of you. Oh, it's amazing. Just for the listeners at home, it'd be great to understand a bit about your journey into local government uh, and, and your kind of your journey throughout kind of working uh, with with different employees within local government. Okay. Well, well many years ago, um, when I left school, I was well was leaving school and going through uh, university um, options, that sort of thing. But I wasn't so keen on going away, so. Fortuitously, my mum found an advert in the local paper and said, you know, you fancy being an engineer at Oxford County Council and starting the training through them, which was on a sort of day release and block release basis. So uh, I quite fancied that. And I'd already started a, a course at somewhere else, which didn't go too well. So I switched over and started the sort of learning on the job method, which suited me better, I think. So, you know, I wasn't mad keen to get into local government in the first place. But having done it there were lots of benefits and it was a nice place to work it felt quite supportive at the start um, and you could work your way up through the ranks so I think I started uh, as a junior technician then it was technician senior technician and, and so on and it developed from there so and ultimately head of highways which was um, I probably deserved I think after the effort I put in but uh, yeah that, that's that's it in a nutshell I suppose really. And just for those listening at home, so a head of highway services, when um, when Ashley worked at Solihull, he led a team of 160 people, and that covers disciplines including asset management of highways, highways design, uh, maintenance, section 38278, structures, drainage, flood risk management, street lighting, etc. So it's a really, really important and a really, really quite uh, large scale role. But in terms of um, the topics today, we're going to be um, discovering um, kind of the, the next four topics will be how local government has changed over 40 years, the strengths of local government, Ashley's experience of leadership, training, and the impact of consultants. So let's dive straight into this then. So over the last 40 plus years, on a national and strategically, you know, uh, in your experience locally, how has local government changed, Ashley? Okay, well, I just was thinking about this and I want to give it some overall context. And I thought I'd go back even further than my 40 years. So if you go back to the end of the First World War, there was an act in Parliament which was set out to enable people to build houses. So local government could build houses from 1920, I think it was, and the first 24 were actually built in Oxford, my research tells me. So that started the trend of local government being influential in construction. So it carried on from there. Uh, After the Second World War, it carried on perhaps even even greater. And I saw Harold Macmillan had announced 300,000 houses built in the year 1953. So that's fairly drastic. So it just shows how influential local government was in construction across the board. So I know that's not highways as such, but just about the work that local government can get done. So for me, I, I joined in 1979 in Oxford County Council. Um, 
and when I moved out into the well, I started off in sort of head office doing bypasses and, and road schemes, um, improvements, roundabouts, that sort of stuff. Um, and it was it was good. I enjoyed it a lot. And there was money around to do those sorts of things. So that we had about four or five largest teams designing those things and turning them over. Like each year there'd be a new bypass pretty much. So there was money to go along with it. So it was quite a, a, a different um, position to where it, it ended up some years later. Um, I thought everything was great in head office, you know, working as we did drawing things and designing and using computers, all that sort of stuff. But then after about seven or eight years there, it was starting to sort of grind a bit, getting a bit slow. So I was looking for an alternative. So I looked to the area offices. So in those days, the, um, the county was split into four, four area engineers who carried out all this sort of construction and maintenance work across the county. So I opt opted to go to that. So I joined the Milton Common Depot, which was on the, the M40. Um, doing that sort of work. Now, it's funny when you transfer from one place to another, you start to sort of see the differences. So having thought that head office was brilliant, everything was fantastic. When I got into the areas and went out on site and said, oh, where's the drawing or where's this or where's that? They looked at me like I was daft. So it, there wasn't anything like that. So you just made stuff up as you went along. So you had a budget and you had a gang so or a number of gangs and you would work with them to build things. So it was a can of spray paint, piece of string, solve a problem. And it was a completely new way of looking at things. And I really enjoyed it. I mean, it was working with people, solving problems. You had freedom to learn, to make mistakes. Um, there's nobody really looking over your shoulder. You need to get a rough brief from somebody to say, I'll oh, go and put some curbing on that bend or something look, um, to stop overrun, those sorts of things. So I really enjoyed that. And it just highlighted the difference between the sort of focus on design and documentation and then the practical approach of doing things. I think the other thing to add to that was the sort of local autonomy, the way people used to look after their own patch. Um, and it was sort of a family in a way. Everybody knew what they were supposed to do and, and they did it. And there was no, um, it's funny, I'll, I'll come into leadership in a minute, but the, the leadership there was, was different. It was vastly different to, uh, to what I'm going to say about leadership later on. Um, I just think, on that point, I mean, just 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 whilst we're talking about that, I mean, I'm I'm really yeah. keen to understand. Obviously, you looked at you you worked in different roles and different leadership, and with highways being out of construction, you love interacting with the public. Do yeah. you think the perception of local government from the public has changed over the last you know forty years? I would say so, and and one of the things I would say about that was the customer service angle. So, customer service wasn't a thing in those days, but. It did exist because what would happen is because everybody knew their patch, as it were, if someone phoned you in the morning and said, oh, I've got a drainage problem outside my house or next to the post office or something in the afternoon, you'd be down there looking at it, talking to the person and giving them, yes, we can do this or no, we can't or we'll put it in for assessment or something like that. So there was that direct contact with people, but without having the need for, you know, you must answer the phone in two rings and all that sort of stuff. Mm. So it was it was quite refreshing. I think these days that you know, I, I can email my local authority and I won't get a reply. I certainly won't be able to speak to the person who does the thing that I'm interested in. And I think that's pretty common across the board. Um, and I think it's a shame. It's, uh, I think partly because people don't want that responsibility that they used to have. So in those days, I would have had responsibility for my patch and I'd have had a budget and I could have fixed it or not or put it in for some, some um, an assessment for a greater scheme, that sort of thing. So completely different way of doing things. Uh, over your time in, in, within local government, did you experience your budget being cut in terms of the amount of money that you had to deliver the services at various levels of seniority to do what you did? Did it become harder 
as the budgets got less or was it a fact that actually you had a pretty consistent level of funding relative to what you were doing well i think back in the sort of 80s it used to go up and down a bit you know some years you'd get a bit more something and then it, it, next year it might go down so or you'd get a, a shift of money into a, um, what was the flavor of the month like thin surfacing you know there'd be an extra budget for that which came from department of transport probably so it would go up and down it, it wasn't so a bit later on it started to decline sort of year on year to the point where say when i was at solihull every year you'd lose half a million quid or whatever and you had to try and do something but no initially it was it was up and down and the thing about it which was really good about local government because I, I did want to pick up on the sort of the good and bad mm. is that the money you were given for your area was spent on the road or the drainage or whatever it was there was very little staff overhead you know there were a few people in the office a couple of you know admin people and, and people with specific say inspection roles or technicians but there wasn't a massive team of people uh, so the money was spent very efficiently on the road and repairing the road and I'm not, I don't think it's ever been surpassed in, in the way it used to work in those days. So going on to that point then because you know talking about the strengths of local government in your opinion what are the strengths of local government? Well as I say then it was that it was the efficiency it was everybody knew what they were doing and did it so if you took say a winter maintenance service everybody knew what to do they'd get in the gritters when it was snowing and they'd do it so the, and the blokes knew the patch so they'd know where the bad spots were where the drainage problems were all that sort of stuff so all that was really really good um i'll if i move that on then now matt into take 1986 which was about when cct came in which was mm -hmm. compulsory competitive tendering so that was Maggie Thatcher's um, grand scheme, really, to make local authorities compete for their own work, in effect. So I think my analysis would be that that was a sort of slippery slope away from what we had. And people might have been had a bit of a down on local government for its maybe quirky ways in some ways. But it became something where you had to compete for your own work. So you had to set up, say, a, a direct labour organisation, which was a sort of a, a different wing of the council to compete for work against other people. Um, that meant that you had to have, you know, local authorities didn't really know what things cost. It, it was that um, sort of uh, cost of everything and value of nothing type scenario. So in those days, nobody knew what it cost. You just did it. You made sure it wasn't a problem. You, f you fixed whatever needed doing. So then it became you needed accountants to work out what things cost and then try to compete one against another and setting up a contract that reflected what people were bidding for. Now, often people would say, well, you know what you're bidding for because you've done it before. I'd say, yeah, we do, but the people outside don't. So you're not necessarily on a level playing field. So I think that was uh, a problem in the first place. I mean, I think on the major scheme stuff prior to going out into the areas, we had tendered things. So there were documents for, for large contracts, five million quid, all that sort of stuff. So that was fair enough, I think, to go out to the, the to the market if you like and procure things that way but the smaller stuff it became a bit of a nightmare I think and I think the, the DLO worked quite well for a few years but it, it gradually sort of got more and more private more sort of arm's length initially the money the profit that was made was fed back to the council so you could argue that that, that wasn't such a bad thing they made profit at the end of the year they had to make profit and it came back to the council and was reinvested in service but as that got more and more private over the years that profit was then removed and it became a less efficient operation, I would argue. Um, I think also that there's, um, what some people did in 1986 or thereabouts was what they called a thin client. So they removed the council 
workforce or staffing and had just a few people, say four or five, I think Berkshire was one of them, and everything else went outside to private people. So you had to have a team commissioning work, but they needed the expertise to do that. And I think over the years also, the expertise to be able to commission outside people has waned somewhat. And It is difficult, isn't it, to have that intelligent client to actually truly ensure that you're getting value for money yeah, yeah. And, and to ensure that you know that also that you can hold the the contracts to account because you know with all these things when it is working with the private sector team if you're yeah. not there ensuring that they are adhering to the contract and and then you know like it's a human instinct they'll just push the boundaries um and it comes down to the bottom dollar whereas as you said there you know for the council it's about the output and the the customer experience so that, that it's, it's it's interesting because yeah. i think we're getting to that point again i think we're seeing more and more now starting to come back in house or whether that's directly in-house or through uh, kind of a, 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 you know, a kind of a joint venture like a Norse group or et cetera. But we are seeing that transition. You know, I think it goes in cycles, doesn't it? Outsourcing, insourcing. Um, well, I'd like to think so. I, mean, I, think, I think it just kept going more and more one way at the moment. And I think the, 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 the worst part of this for local government is losing the confidence to do stuff. So go back to the old days. There was confidence. I mean, Oxfordshire in, in the... 70s and 80s we built bypasses and, and all sorts of stuff you know big big schemes all done with the in-house contractor but then over the years the confidence has been lost it goes outside because people inside haven't got the confidence to make decisions so they sort of defer it to someone else assuming they've got the expertise but they haven't necessarily and they also haven't got the vision of what needs to be done so you get a sort of a half-baked scenario where someone comes in and does something which perhaps isn't the, the greatest idea and I I think even for me learning, when I was out in the areas, I could make mistakes. You know, I did lots of things. I tried stuff out. I was trying to spend the, the budget as wisely as I could. And I would try things and I'd learn that some things worked and some didn't. But there was always that feedback loop into me and, and the close team to do that. So we also didn't do, you know, if I got a spec from head office to do something, I didn't necessarily do it. I would think, well, that's a bit bonkers. I know this area better than that specification. I'm not going to waste all this money here, but I'll spread it over you know, half a mile stretch of road and, and get a far better outcome. So I had that freedom to do that, Was I think these days there's loads of control on what people do. And you think of project management now, which is a sort of a glorified admin function to a large degree, where people have to go through stage after stage to get permission. But when it comes back the other way for a decision to be made about something, there's nothing there. There's no one to make a decision or it takes ages and ages. So the, the poor old contractor, and I have to put a word out for the contractors in this, get a bad press. You know, they've always been blamed for anything that overspend or time delays. Invariably, in my experience, it's not their fault. It's someone else's fault feeding the information down or not feeding it down in a, in a timely manner. That's really interesting. I guess that local knowledge. I mean, one question I've got around is, is the retention and recruitment of, of of the skilled workforce that goes into highways. Yeah. Has that got harder or has it always been difficult to uh, to attract and retain highways, talented highways, technical professionals? I think we're crossing over some of our themed areas. But I'll, oh, sorry. I'm just thinking I've, I've made some notes and then we'll keep crossing into different things. Um, it used to be, we'll go back to, no, I've got to training as a separate thing, but it doesn't really matter. Um, it, when I started, there was training, there was graduate training. So that a couple of people would go away to university each year, and there was also technician training as well for OMC and that sort of stuff. So you had a constant flow through of new young engineers and heading up to become chartered engineers and that sort of thing. 
And it was even uh, mooted at one point that engineers would have to have doctorates and things so that they'd be even higher status and would command greater salary and be worth more. That, that didn't ever really gain any ground. It sort of stops at the chartered status thing. I think over the years, it's just, it's, well, I was the last to get a degree, I think, at Oxford. It was 1995. I don't think there was any training as such after that. And, and I had to pay for myself, actually, to get through my first year. But um, that worked out OK. But, yeah, I think the lack of training across the board and in other places, I remember BT. I mean, we used to work with BT and other utilities. They'd lay off all their people on a Friday and they'd have to recruit consultants on a Monday because they didn't have any staff. I mean, it, this, this was common across different areas. So and then more recently at Solly Hull, when I was up there, we couldn't recruit people. We couldn't recruit um, quality people. So we had to go to consultants. And again, we'll, we'll pick up on that in a minute to try and drag people in to, to carry out a task. So in the end, I, I started to work on our own training. So we got young people in, you know, 17, 18 years old, and we started to send them to college and train them ourselves. Because the only way you could get decent people was to do that. And, but to make it attractive for them to want to stay with you for a, a decent period of time. So, uh, you know, I've got friends now who are older than me who are still working as, as consultants to the council because there is no one younger coming through to carry out that sort of work. It's really terrifying, isn't it? It is really, and particularly within the it, technical. It's short-sighted, isn't it? And I think it yeah. was a, um, like the training budget sometimes wouldn't be spent each year on because it was a sort of a, I don't know, nobody knew what to do with it. But it was always vital, in my opinion, to, to train people to come through and and to have not just sending them to college, but to have within your own organisation senior people training the younger ones. So in, in team scenarios, you know, passing on what they'd learned over the years, and they, and people are reluctant to do that. I think as well, in, in my experience. I think it's really valuable. But also it's once you've trained them, it's then holding on to them because if they can go, you know, it's giving them a career path and giving them Absolutely. a culture they buy into. Because, I mean, that's one of the things that I see time and time again is whether it's chartership or, you know, you, you know, accountants or if it's property or if it's legal or, or highways, you know, you invest a lot of money, a lot of time getting people chartered and then they get offered, you know, 20 grand more to go and work in the private sector. And then suddenly, you know, so. But it's almost yeah. just being, you know, realistic that that will happen to, to some of your, your staff. But it's almost like you said, it's investing into that so that, you know, um, you, you've got kind of you, you use them for what you can kind of get out of that resource as they're training. Um, yeah, and you yeah. keep that turnstile going. Um, but I think back but, in, the, in the 80s, 90s, people didn't move around as much. They tended to stay at one place and there was a career path. Now, you would become a team leader, a principal engineer. There was that movement. I guess part of it is the reduction in spending. So the schemes weren't there. You know, the big bypasses we used to do in the 80s, they were no longer around. So there wasn't that movement. People to become chartered used to do a structure, you know, but not everybody was building bridges anymore. So you had to find a different route to that sort of thing. But um, I like to think in Solihull, we actually had created a regime where people did like to stay. But if they did move, they could move within the area. You know, they might move to a consultant. They might move back again. You know, there was a bit more freedom and we tried to do that in our training that people could move from the, the contractor to the consultant and back to us or you know whichever way around to gain experience in different areas and then we also had where the young trainees would report to the wider group at say, a lunchtime session so you know what they were learning what the schemes they worked on they would feed back to the group so it became a fairly positive spiral i think um and what recommended for other people if they're if they're interested I mean, going back, sorry, I mean, didn't mean to, to pull us across from uh, your, you were talking about kind of the, the progressive from the 1980s to the 1990s. That, what was your experience then from that, that point? 
what in terms of recruitment you mean no just in terms of what we were previously talking about um the, oh. the first kind of point we were exploring and then i pulled you off into training all oh, right i see um well for me i, I moved offices so i got promotion to i went to bister office and headed up a small team um but that was good again because we were doing what we call puzzle then it's now nurse where new roads and street street works that stuff um so i took on the responsibility for that uh, which was i really enjoyed that but, you know having the responsibility for different things and, and actually um sort of policing things was quite good because we had relationships but we also had a little bit of clout to force people through courts and things to do stuff um, and we did that you know i took that responsibility to, to take people to court if they weren't playing ball and to you know get our hundred thousand quid back but i think a lot of that has slipped as well the way things are done it's except if they go into a permit system which is a different story altogether but um yeah it was, it was still good up to sort of 1995 maybe 2000 i think things were still quite good there was quite a good balance of of uh, internal and external um i think after that it started to to slide a wee bit and in terms of let's talk about that because i mean you've you've talked about and i'm going to pull you a, a, to a to a different point that we've been talking about so far mm-hmm. consultants okay and the Think impact of consultants. I'd, I'd like to to really explore that because, you know, from the sounds of it, as your time went through local government, there was an increased utilisation of consultants yeah. to help deliver work. And what, what was the impact of consultants, in your opinion? OK, I, I was trying to trawl through this in my mind, really, to think when it came about, you know, when they started. So I, I think it goes back to the CCT stuff and externalisation. So I think the design function had to be tended for as well. So I was just trying to get my head around that. I remember people being stupid across from OCC to Babti and, and other consultants like that. So I think that was the start of it, you know, again, which was driven by the financial need to, to tender stuff. But I think with that change and it being removed from the local authority more, it became more of a privatised business function. So the money became that much more influential in, in things. So. And to the, the worst extent, where sometimes you would have a budget for something. Now, I didn't manage these guys, but I, I did schemes myself and alongside the ones that have been done by the consultants. And sometimes the whole budget would be spent on the consultants' fees. You know, they would book so many hours to a scheme. There was no money left for the scheme. And so instead of spending 60000 on the road and 3000 on my time, it would be 60000 on fees and nothing on the on the scheme. So then they'd have to go back and try and get more money to do something. So... I think the inefficiency, I mean, I'm sorry if I'm putting people's noses out of joint here, but the inefficiency accrued you know, massively over time. And, and with it, I think the other part is that, um, I mean, lots of them now are controlled by overseas companies. So the aversion to risk is phenomenal. It started off and it got worse and worse and worse, in my opinion. So much so that in more recent years, people wouldn't wouldn't uh, tender for a scheme at all. They consider there was a risk attached to it, and therefore wouldn't even put in a price for the for the work, which was fairly dire. I mean, back in the I think it was in the nineties, I was doing a scheme in Oxford. I did a section of a road, and a consultant did the other section, but which abutted each other, um, and they were they were paid for their section, which they didn't do very well. They didn't provide all the information the contractor needed, and that caused problems. But they didn't ever pay any compensation. They didn't ever put things right. And that wasn't the only case. And that was often the case. So, so it wasn't a level playing field, you know, local government against consultants. It was they had for some reason. And you, you touched on it earlier about not being policed properly. And there was no one to say 
you know, you've made a mistake, you need to put it right, you need to pay to put it right. Or, you know, don't work in that way that creates the mistake in the first place, because their tendency, again, in my experience, was to blame the contractor for something rather than put their hand up and say, because I guess they didn't want to lose any money. They didn't want to um, suffer in any way at all. So I think that was... Uh, so, so in your experience, so that that got that got worse. So the Absolutely, the, yeah. the yeah. value for money uh, and the quality from the consultants. So just for people listening at home, so you've got the council and the consultants, and then the the main contractors. So the consultants were designing and and kind of leading the project management of those those projects, and then the main contractor was actually doing the work. Is that is that? Yes. Yeah. 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 But on this particular scheme, the main contractor was working for me on my bit, and working for them on the other half. But we ended up with. You know, I would argue my scheme turned out really well and then theirs didn't. And, you know, it's not to blow my own trumpet. It's just just the, the way of I would work in partnership with the contractor. And that always had done. You know, that's what the area thing had taught me how to do is work with the people on the ground who, who knew what they were doing, you know, physically and construction wise. Not to be some sort of high and mighty power that comes in from outside and, you know, laying down diktats and stuff like that. So, so how would and you not to say that all consultants Sorry. were bad. I mean, there were some... Who, probably the ones who were ex-local authority, say it's in the soils investigation labs and things like that, the geotechnical stuff, you know, you could go to them and you could get some good advice, often for nothing or, you know, for a reasonable fee and people who understood uh, the sort of practical sense. And, and the other part with the consultants, and, and this, again, I think it's got worse and worse, is over-design. So it doesn't matter to them that the scheme goes over budget they will design something that's perhaps 10 times as thick as it needs to be, rather than, as I described earlier, you know, if you've given £100,000 to do the, your best job on a road, you know, you'd make that money go as far as you could, rather than saying, well, I've spent all the money on the design um, and it's going to last for a million years, but is it appropriate to the situation that you've got? So it's that, that sort of practical approach. And, and just, uh, again, it's that avoidance of risk, you know, that they would over-design. I, I saw that much more recently before I left Oxford, Things where lay-by was done a metre deep of construction next to a dual carriageway that was 200 millimetres deep. You know, completely wacky designs that were just inappropriate and, and wasteful of time and money and everybody's resources. So in a way, the way to improve the uh, the value from the consultants would be to ensure that risk was properly, uh, properly uh, led the design uh, level so that it was people weren't over... Um, I'm not articulating this very well. It, so the risk didn't uh, create uh, irrational or uh, not value for money schemes. Yeah, it's just the perception of risk, isn't it? And the the sharing of it. I mean, risk is best on a contract like that when it's shared. So if you take, if you're digging through some ground and you don't know where the utilities are, that sort of thing. And we've done this in Oxford many, many times. If I shared with the contractor, look, if you hit a couple of things, don't worry about it. We'll pay for it. But you know you'll give me some give and take on something else you can work together so you're both not scared out of your you know what to to you know make a mistake but if if that risk is always on one side of the equation partly you're going to pay for it and if you load it all on the contractor they're going to charge you for it in the long run but you know the consultants would be thinking they would it's, it's like looking at the small detail rather than the big picture with it so look at the whole thing and work out where it's best to assign that risk or whether to share it or whatever, all those sorts of things. So it's, it's a massive factor, I think. I mean, when I was up in Solihull, there would be things where a contract, uh, a consultant would get a drawing and they'd look at, say, the red line around the drawing, which was to do planning and that sort of stuff, and they wouldn't consider anything outside that line. So 
you then find that the levels didn't match up or something like that. And they say, well, we only looked inside the line. You say, well, you should have looked outside because if you were competent, then you'd be looking at the whole scenario. And there, you'd, therefore, you'd be of value to the client by offering your advice and your expertise. And even uh, I used to say to them about creativity, you know, it brings some solutions that I haven't thought of. You know, you're a global company. You must have things that you've done elsewhere. But there weren't that many of them around. I was really quite surprised. But again, I think this the question of risk all over is they're never learning. Well, never. That's too sweeping statement. They don't learn as much as they might do because they've never tried something that may have got near to failing. Put it that way. Whereas my own experience years ago, you know, a couple of things did fail. They didn't cost millions of pounds, but I'd learned that not to do that particular uh, design detail again, stuff like that. So no one wants, wants to make a mistake these days, either. I mean, there's this huge pressure not to make a mistake. And you can design, you know, if you're doing a major scheme in a, in a city centre, you don't want to be dropping a clanger in there. So you get all your ducks in a row and sorted out. But there are other places where you can try things, you can learn stuff. And everybody now talks about this, don't they? Freedom to fail. And if you know, scientific world, people try hundreds of experiments before they get the right thing. So this, this idea of perfection and all you're going to get a, a slap on the wrist if you don't get it right is, is, is holding people back, I think. Interesting. I mean, I want to talk now about leadership because, mm -hmm. you know, um, I think that's a really important part. And I'd like to talk about your experience and, and how that evolved um, throughout your time in local government. Could you talk us a bit about your experience of leadership, please? Yes, my favourite subject. <laughs> yeah, I've got plenty of time. Um, I was just thinking back again over the time. So when I went, when I started in head office in, in Oxford, leadership was a few sort of grey men in suits in offices at the end of the corridor. There was no team spirit or get the troops together or vision or anything like that. It just didn't exist. I'm like, I guess it had done in the war. You know, there'd been leaders in the war. But after that, in my experience, there wasn't really anything. It was just, uh, you know, you were worried if you got sent to the office at the end for a, you thought you were going to get a bollocking sort of thing or the keys to the executive washroom or that sort of stuff. But then and going out into the areas, again, I described a different way of working out there, but that almost didn't have leadership either it was like a family where everybody just knew what they did so there wasn't sort of wasn't a need for it you know you got your budget you did your job that was it and everybody was happy that it was just a sort of team effort so again I think when the privatization stuff started and contracts changed it started to evolve into this different sort of leadership which again what was you know, leadership's a big thing these days. You know, I follow it in the press all the time. So you take the post office, the police, um, the fire service, NHS, leadership is pretty diabolical in, in this place in, in lots of cases. So it, it doesn't measure up to what it should do as per, you know, if you watch all the leadership gurus on things, this isn't happening in, in, to a large extent. And, and in my experience, it didn't either. So there wasn't, I didn't have any um, leaders that I would really look up to in, in my time. Um, some some good people and some good managers, I think, but there wasn't this sense of let's try and create a vision and look after everybody, work as a team, all that sort of stuff. So again, not not to bang my own drum, but you know, when I became the leader of a highway department, quite a few people, I did try hard to be a good leader and to to develop the staff, to be to respect the staff, to look after them. And fundamentally, because that's what I believe the right thing to do is. So it wasn't about penalising somebody or, or trying to get them to keep their mouth shut or not report an incident or that sort of thing. But so, but around me, 
the examples of leadership were not great, I would say. And I think another part of it was great expectation from a senior level, be it sort of the political side or, or just the senior people, and pressure on those below. Again, but more into not making a mistake rather than being we're all in this, you know, we're all valuable, we can all make a contribution stuff. And I, I think it's just a massive uh, loss of potential really uh, across the workforce at, at all different levels. So, you know, I'm, I'm pleased to say that the, the couple of the guys who were in my team who've now moved on to become heads, I think have, have got the right attitude and they've done well. And I, I hope they picked up a little bit from the way I did things rather than some of the examples that were around us at the time. I mean, some of this goes into, there were, I know of cases of bullying and things like that. And you know, I've had some of that experience myself. And that just shouldn't happen. It's, you know, it's all right having policies that the, the HR department throw out at you, but you've got to have people who really care about staff and they don't abuse them and that sort of thing. So I think in leadership, there's a lot to be um, developed. In fact, when I retired, I, I was still a sort of a student of this. I've, I've always followed Simon Sinek and all those sorts of people and read loads of books on leadership. And I wrote my own book. So I wrote a book called Leadership for Good Guys. In, I published it in 2020 on Amazon, about five quid if you want a stocking filler for Christmas. Anybody? Um, it's, it's, only, it's only small, but I think just fundamentally, leadership is about you've got to be a decent person, a decent sort of person who cares for your fellow man. You can train the leadership skills on top of that bit, but I think fundamentally, if you haven't got that, then we're going to struggle. And I suppose the last thing I would say is, if I can remember it, uh, I can't, Matt, so you'll ask me a question and I'll come back to it. Absolutely fine. Um, so I'd like to finish just talking about the strengths of local government, because I know you're very passionate about local government and, and the good that it does to the community. But it would be mm. we've talked about back in the 1980s uh, and the fact that, you know, it delivered for the community um, in terms of delivering, sorting the problems that were there. And there was that human connection. Um, I think in what I'd like to understand is like in this day and age now in, in 2020, uh, three, you know, what do you think are the the strengths and the opportunities that exist for local government um, in the present day? Two parts to the question there. Opportunities, yes. Um, isn't there? There's, there's still opportunity. I mean, potentially there might be some more house building at some point. You know, we're crying out for houses. There's nothing to stop local authorities using their money to build houses. Um, there's development, you know, lots of them have got metro mayors and things like that. So local authorities can be influential on, um, you know, EV charging infrastructure, um, what's the Internet of Things, all that sort of stuff. You know, I tried this before I retired. I was trying to sort of look to the, the future and what we could do to influence things. So we can take leads. And I think we're good at commissioning, say we, I assume I'm still there, that we can commission other things from outside um, private people. So I'm not wholly against private things. There are lots of good private companies, but it's setting up their contract on, like often they would give it you a free service. You know, we, we did Internet of Things experiment stuff and it was for nothing. You know, so the company would give you something for nothing to start with <clears throat> just to test the idea. So we, we can be a proving ground. We can do that sort of thing. Um, so I think that there's lots of scope for that. And there's, you know, there's development all over the place and, and that needs to work. I was watching a thing yesterday actually on the CIHT website about uh, logistics and freight um, planning and that sort of stuff in you know, a golden triangle of first day or overnight deliveries and all that sort of stuff. So there's got to be an integration of local and national to make sure things function properly. So a bit less nimbyism but seeing the bigger picture. So it's setting up the groups to make sure that happens. Um, I just think that 
going on from the consultant side of thing and, and back into this that there are things have got so complicated as i said before you get you know forever seems advert advertising for project managers well project managers are just people looking over the engineer's shoulder to my way of thinking to sort of stop them doing things or saying have you done this have you done that it, there's too many people involved there's too many layers and I think that's deliberate. I think that's happened because people, like I said before, are frightened to make decisions. So they create layers and layers of bureaucracy and meetings and all the rest of it and risk management teams and everything like that. Again, it's my very personal view, as we put in the disclaimer. Um, it's just so difficult to get things done. I remember being back at Oxford and someone coming around saying, oh, we've done any schemes this year. I was the only hand to go up. That everything else had been sort of frightened out of the out of existence, but you know, I'd managed to complete the scheme, and I was I was quite chuffed at that. So we can do things. I think we need a, a drastic um, realignment of stuff and, and stripping away so many things. You know, don't just put more and more people in. Give it to one person. To my mind, you need one person to run a project, who then liaises with other people who have expertise and know how about specific things. That's how I used to do it in the past. I think it used to work well. You know, maybe on a, a massive project, you'd break it down into elements, but still have one person responsible for each thing. But the more people you get involved in something, it just becomes a bit of a dog's dinner. And the poor old contractor who's out there, he's found a problem on site and he's waiting for a decision. And he can be parked up with thousands of pounds worth of kit doing nothing for two weeks while somebody's making a decision. And that isn't the way to go. I mean, that, that really doesn't help anybody at all, I don't think. So to summarise then, the utilisation of consultants needs to be properly structured to ensure value for money and the simplification yeah. of processes and structures to ensure that people can truly achieve and risk doesn't risk is a is there as a safety net and not as a shackle holding you down um yeah 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 I, i've been to so many meetings where they're talking about risk well i never really understood what they were talking about because in the past you would design the risk out you know you consider a risk and you just wouldn't you know if there's a risk that someone's going to fall down the hole you put a fence around it so it doesn't it's not a risk anymore because you've dealt with it isn't it so you deal with the things along the way you know the thing about jumbo jet comes out of the sky and crashes and you know that no one's going to handle that sort of stuff that's just freakish stuff but you know the basic stuff the contractors i mean if we are going to stick with the model of having a private contractor working for local authority and there are some benefits because some of them are good and they offer some quite good things is you need to let them get on with it you need to free them up to use their their logistics and know-how resources and so on to do stuff but yet still sometimes the opposite happens with local government where the client will be very controlling and they'll try and manipulate that thing so you'll you again not get the efficiency out of the contractor because you're trying to micromanage every step of the way so that happens in that relationship but also within the staff where you've got a micromanaging culture in local authority that's stopping the people from from flying um, a little tale I had, I had a, a lady in my team who was doing traffic work and I thought she's got great potential to do something else. So I said, would you like to manage a different scheme? And she said, yes. So I, I gave her some instruction on that and over a few weeks sort of let go of the handlebars, as it were, and, and she sort of flew off and, and did other things. And within about a year, she'd left and gone to a consultant and, you know, gone up as a, I think, became a partner fairly rapidly. So it's, it's about training and developing just for the need to do it, full stop. It's not about retaining it for yourself, but it's the right thing to do. And and then it'll happen back to you. You know, things go around, don't they? You'll get something back in it in another way. So it's, it's a, 
you know, eyes open, big picture stuff, and let, let's get on and do things. And that's being an engineer. You know, what you want to do is build things. It's really satisfying to have completed some stuff, and then maybe in a year to have done a number of things rather than three years have gone by and one scheme's not even started. Which is, Absolutely. You know, I don't, I don't think there's any engineer there that doesn't want to to build. They all, Absolutely, <laughs> they all yeah, yeah. you know, and that's it's free people to do that. But um, yeah. it's been absolutely fantastic speaking to you too, Ashley. I, I really do appreciate your time and your insight and. Thank you so much for you for your service to to the various council you work with. We really do appreciate it. Um, so thank you so much. Well, for your that's time. nice to hear after all these years. <laughs> <laughs> no, and, and well done. And you, you're summarising because I know I sort of go off on one a bit, but yeah, I think you've summarised the key points pretty well there. So yeah, well done. I know it's it's been fantastic, and, and if you're sat at home with uh, and you want a, a stocking filler, leadership for good people on Amazon. Leadership uh, for good a, guys. For good guys, sorry. Yeah. Good guys. I, I can't show it on the screen because I lent it to my son who's just become a manager. <laughs> so uh, yeah, yeah it's, it, it doesn't take you long to read, but uh, hopefully there's something for everybody in there. Amazing. Well, look, about thank- five quid. Yeah, <laughs> amazing. Well, look, thank you for your time. It's been fantastic to speak to you, and. Um, Thank you to everyone at home uh, for listening. Uh, for myself and Ashley, it's goodbye for now. And yeah, uh, we'll speak to you. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Great stuff. Thanks, Matt. You have been listening to the Truth About Local Government podcast. Remember, your local council does some amazing work, but you can help. So remember to vote and be engaged with the work they're doing. If you like this podcast, please like, share and give a five-star review. If you would like to feature on the podcast, have any shout-out of excellent work being done by a local authority or have any topics you would like covered, please email me at truthaboutlocalgovernment at gmail.com. Truth About Local Government. Local government is at the heart of what we do. Thank you.